All right, we're going to get straight away into this. Um, you're here on a Saturday, all right? So everyone's a follower of Jesus, correct? Okay, good. You're in church on Saturday. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you missed a great opportunity. Okay, see ya. All right, the, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, you're in church on Saturday. You're, you know, look, we're, we're here. Um, this is going to take a very much a teaching seminar type tone, okay? Um, and so if you want to hear good preaching, come tomorrow morning and uh, we'll go back to that. But I, I'm here today to try to help. All right. I'm trying to I'm going to try to teach something that and it's a topic that a bunch of raw, raw stuff doesn't really do it justice. So um, I'm, I'm going to go through a bunch of scriptures. What you're going to hear today is not good preaching. Actually, good preaching homiletically is one or two scriptures expounded to the nth degree. Um, we're just covering too many scriptures to do that today. Um, so we're going to have two sessions and about financial freedom. Obviously, we can't cover everything in two sessions. So um, I've had to pick and choose what we're going to cover, and um, you will have the main sort of gist of it, okay? And here's my hope. My hope is at the end of this that you talk about it, you discuss it, you get with the closest people in your life and you say, what does this mean for us? How can we apply this? Let me cover one thing very quickly, okay? Anytime you bring up the topic of money, you open up all kinds of things. Um, People get really irritated, and they instantly go... Is this law or grace? Um, well, the short answer to that is, is it's all grace. And if I can make a point, um, other than food and money, um, people don't have a problem with the Old Testament at all. Like if I was to say, the topic for the seminar today is don't be sexually intimate with your mother. Um, that's in Leviticus 12, it's a command. Don't be sexually intimate with your mother. Um, But that verse is nowhere in the New Testament. And and I guarantee you, no one would say, wait a minute, you're putting us under the law. Um, Even though it's nowhere in the New Testament. If I was to say, uh, the topic of today's lecture is don't burn your children in fire. I I guarantee you, no one would say, wait a minute, you're putting us under the law. No, 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 no. Um, Let me just handle the law and grace thing. Even in the oldest of the oldest of the oldest of the oldest of the Old Testament... Your forgiveness was never found in keeping the commands. Your forgiveness was found in putting your faith in God's faithfulness. They put their faith in a lamb and they were forgiven. How are we forgiven? We put our faith in a lamb. Same. Old and new, no difference. Forgiveness came by grace through faith. The commands were never intended to forgive sins. The commands were, were intended to show forgiven people how to live. So, without going into all that, because I'm going to go into some of that tomorrow... Um, Let me just say this. If at the end of these two hours, you decide, I'm never going to implement one thing of what he said. Great. That's okay. Seriously, I don't have to live your life. It will not affect your forgiveness. I'll see you in heaven. That'd be great. And and you can choose to live however you like, and God still loves you just the same. Okay? Um, This is not about law at all. This is about how God intended for us to live the best sort of life. Okay, because we have to believe something. We have to ask ourselves some core belief questions. And that is this. If I if I'm willing to trust God with my eternal soul, what is it about money that I don't trust him with? We trust him with something as big as eternity. And yet when it comes to money, there's something in us that wants to hoard. So what I want to show you today is that God actually instituted a divine order of handling money. You might can write down a divine order of giving or a divine order of living. or he, he actually instituted a divine order of handling money. 
And he intended for it to create the most blessed group of people in the history of the world. Did it work? Yes. You have a group of people who make up less than 1% of the world's population, yet they have 30% of the world's wealth. Um, they're on to something. Okay? Now, if you're taking notes, which I would really, really, really recommend, um, we're going to have five main points today. Five main points. Let, let me just give them to you all at once and then leave space for notes if you want. But these are the five main points. Work. Work is number one. Number two, wisdom. Number three, honor. Number four, knowing God. And number five, Sadaka. T S I D A Q A H. T S I D A Q A H. We're going to get to that in the second session. All right. To win financially, first of all, we have to, we have to institute a couple of things. Number one, work. God never designated himself as the cure for laziness. As a matter of fact, in the Torah, there's a certain disdain that God has for laziness. Um, he actually abhors it. That God never set himself up as the cure for laziness. That there's a great cure for poverty. It's called get a job. Get a job. Work hard. There is no, there, there is no supernatural, super spiritual thing that overcomes um, a lack of hard work or laziness. You, we've all been taught to tithe, correct? Correct? We say, if you tithe, it open the windows of heaven. Is that true? Sure. But t- is tithing the cure for laziness? No. So, so people say, well, I tithe and God isn't blessing me. Yes, but you're sleeping till 11. You, you're sleeping till 11. You're, you're not doing anything to gain a skill that's marketable. I mean, there, there's things that you have to do in the natural that you can't overlook. You've got to work hard. In the ancient Jewish world, they worked six 12-hour days. And they still sort of carry that today. They work six twelves. We work five eights and we're worn out. <laughs> they work six twelves, we work five eights. So take God out of it and you already have 32 man hours a week of production more than what we do. There's a side to favor that's spiritual. But there's a side to favor that's very natural. Have you ever noticed that very prepared people are more lucky than unprepared people? <laughs> so is it really luck? No, it's preparation. It's preparation. So, number one, work hard. Work hard. Number two, live in wisdom. Live in wisdom. Let me say this. God is not the cure-all for laziness, nor is he the cure-all for stupidity. God is not the cure for stupid. Um, A stupid and selfish act on your part does not constitute an emergency on God's part. Um, if you're stupid and you're selfish, well, let me, let me, I don't want to say you're stupid. If you do something stupid or if you do something selfish, it does not constitute an emergency on God's part. Let, let me give you an example of what I mean outside of finances. At this church, we believe in the power of God, correct? We believe in the, God's power to deliver, save, heal, restore, redeem all things, correct? All right. Would you rather pray for someone for a miracle? Or would you rather see them prevent the need for the miracle? 
Now, once again, I'm all... Sometimes people face things that they did not deserve, they did not set up, they did not make decisions to sow into. And, and those are the people that we really want to believe God to touch. And we really want to believe God to touch all people, regardless if it was their fault or not. But but to smoke three packs of cigarettes a day for 30 years and then need prayer for lung cancer, that, that's, that's, that's a little bit more preventable. You with me? Like, it, it's, it's best... We, do we want to see God heal lung cancer? Yes, but we would rather actually see you give up smoking at 22 so that at 52 you're not in that situation. You with me? So in other words, do all you could do. Do all you could do. Wisdom. Let me give you just a couple points that they have. They work hard. Number two, they stay out of debt. They don't borrow money. And they particularly do not borrow money on things going down in value. Okay? They don't borrow money. If you're paying 8% interest on something losing 20% of its value a year, that's a real problem. A, a car is a good example of that. Um, there are some cases where getting a new car is, is, is okay, but in, in 90% of cases, uh, a new car is going to lose 50% of its value in the first three years. So, so, what, so what that means is, is, that, is that if you buy something for $40,000... And in three years, you know it's going to be worth twenty. Um, you have to know that that's the best. I mean, can you? Like, if I said, "Look, what I want you to do? I have a business proposition for you. I, I want you to give me forty grand, and in three years, I promise I'll give you twenty grand back." Are you Are you going to do that? Well, of course not, right? I mean, anybody do that? I'll do it. Um, the um, uh, anybody? Anyone want to play? Let's play. Um, come on, yeah, yeah. You give me forty, I'll give you twenty all day long. This is going to be great. Um, of course we wouldn't do that. What, what if I said, you give me 40 and in three years I'll give you 20 and in the meantime, I'll let you drive a really nice car. Um, okay. So, so do, you, do you see where we are there? Now I'm all for nice cars. I have a nice car. Um, I'm, all, I'm all for nice cars. What, what I'm not all for is, is borrowing money on something going down in value or putting too much assets into things going down in value. Um, the, the, the combined, the combined total of your toys, what I mean by toys is anything with wheels, uh, or it has to get where it's going with wheels, cars, boats, sea and their sisters. Okay. Um, if the combined total value of all of those things is more than half of your income, even if you own it, you can't really afford it. Even if you don't owe money on it, because there's too much of your liquid of your liquidability, there's too much of it in something going down in value. So we have to have wisdom. Don't borrow money. If you can't afford it, save. And here's what you'll find: if you can't afford it, if you make a commitment, if I can't afford it, I'm going to save until I can afford it. And the time it takes you to save, you'll realize you don't need it, and it'll save you a lot of heartache. All it ends up is another place to store something. If you can't afford it. Make a commitment to save for it. In the process of saving for it, you'll find that you didn't need it anyway. So it'll save you a lot of money. So number one, get out of debt. This is number one out of wisdom. Get, get out of debt. Number two, save. We're going to talk about this in the second session. But it was biblically mandated. It was a biblical command. And you, you, you probably would have never seen this. It was a biblical command to save 10% of your income. They saved 10% of their income their whole life. Now, I'm going to talk about this in the second session more at length. But let me just show you how smart God is. If you're here today, don't answer me out loud. This is rhetorical. If you're here today and you're over 55, let me just ask you a question. If you had saved 10% of your income your whole life, how much money would you have now? <laughs> a bunch. 
just by compounding interest. Um, if you, uh, this is what financial people tell me, is that if someone saves from 18 to 30 and then stops, they'll have more money than someone who starts at 30 and saves to 60. Because of compounding interest in the rule of 72, your money will double roughly every six years. So those, last, those first 12 years get you two extra doubles at the end, which makes up for anything that... It, it's not a matter of amount, it's a matter of time, a long period of it. It was a biblical mandate to save money. 10% of your income. I thank my God in heaven on a regular basis for my mother. My mother made me save 10% of my income from the time I was four. When I was four years old, she went and opened a bank account. Um, for me and when I was four years old if granny gave me a dollar mom would drive me to the Circle K which was a gas station we'd go in ask for ten dimes out of those ten dimes I had to put ten cents in the offering plate and I had to take ten cents to the bank she would actually drive me to the bank teach me how to fill out a deposit slip let me let me actually hand it to the teller with ten cents in it she taught me how to do this she taught me how to do this from the time I was four I've always saved ten percent of my income and and I don't I don't want to get too too open with your too like gaudy or anything but i could just tell you the power of that that even from four to 25 when i was 25 years old i crossed the hundred thousand dollar mark um at 25 years old i had over a hundred thousand dollars now it's in something i can't touch till i'm 60 all right so stay away i'm just like it's it's all right yeah i i i i you yeah you'd have to put up with me till i'm 60 to get it but the um but but it's 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 a something like but to have a hundred thousand dollars at twenty five is a fair whack of a good start, isn't it? So so you you have wisdom. Don't borrow money. Save. We're going to talk about that again in, in in the next session. Oh oh, here's another one uh, under wisdom. Don't trust the government to do it for you. <laughs> Don't trust the government to do it for you. Um, let, let me share this scripture with you from someone we would consider a hero, but he made a mistake, and he's still considered a hero because. All heroes do make mistakes, but it's Joseph. Um, Joseph, let me just catch you up on the story. It's in Genesis chapter 41, verse 33 to 36. Genesis 41, 33 to 36. Joseph, if I could just catch you up on the context, Joseph is in prison, and he is able to, uh, uh, to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. And essentially, the, the Pharaoh has this dream, and what it tells him is, is that there's going to be seven years of plenty, and then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And, and he asked Joseph, what do we do about this? And this is Joseph's answer. And now let, this is uh, Genesis 41, 33. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. I love it. Hey, have you ever said something that had sort of an underhanded, like Joseph standing in front of Pharaoh, he's still an inmate. And uh, Pharaoh says, what do I do about this, Joseph? And Joseph's like, if only there was a wise man you could trust to take care of all this. I don't know. I love it. Uh, Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and take. Everybody say take. And take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. So so what did Joseph do? He instituted a 20% tax. So instead of making a rule... Let's make, let's make a law that everyone has to save 20% and store it up in their own barns. He says, no, let's let the government take it. And, and presumably the issue is, if we take 20% over seven years, we'll have enough to provide for our people at the end. And that sounds good at first, but it never works. Everything the government ever tries fails, um, at least in America. Maybe New Zealand government is better. But um, 
in, in America, everything, everything they have done uh, fails. Amtrak's broke. PO, the, the post office is broke. Um, everything they try to take over broke. Now they want to run health care? Are you kidding me? Okay, so um, it says, um, it says hard, they should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store the grain up under the authority of Pharaoh. In other words, the government will take care of it. To be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country in order to be used during the seven years of famine. Now, this all sounds like a good idea. That will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. So, so Joseph says, here's what we're going to do. The government's going to take 20%, save it for the people, so that when famine hits, we'll be able to take care of them. Now, then this whole story ensues about his brothers and all kinds of things. And then finally, the seven years of famine come around. Genesis 41 verse 56 and 57 Genesis 41 verse 56 and 57 Now when the famine had spread over the whole country Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians Everybody say sold So he took it from them and then he sold it back to them What a great business plan He took it from them and then he sold it back to them. Um, I'm sure he had good intentions at first, but eventually what, what happens is really, really not good. It says that he collected so much grain that they quit measuring it because it was pointless. Um, 20% of everybody's harvest for seven years, they quit measuring it because it was pointless. And he sold grain to the Egyptians for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in the world. So not only did he sell it at a profit to other countries, he sold it back at a profit to the people he took it from to begin with. Um, Genesis 47, verse 13 to 21, tells you the end of the story. Genesis 47, verse 13 to 21. It says, There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. And Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in all of Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying. In other words, he took it from them, then he sold it back to them until they ran out of money. All the money was gone in payment for the grain they were buying. And he, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. In other words, give it to us for free now. Come on, seriously, we're starving. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is now used up. He said, then bring your livestock, Joseph said. I will sell you food in exchange for livestock since your money's gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, sheep, goats, cattle, donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for their livestock. So at first he, he took all their money for the food that he took to begin with. Then he took all their livestock and everything they had. Now watch what happens. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. And we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die. And that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. And the land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to slavery. Joseph reduced the people 
to slavery. So, in other words, um, you can't trust the government to do for you what God has called you to stand up and do for yourself. You can't trust the government to do for you what God has called you uh, to do to stand up and take responsibility for yourself. Let me make one more wise sort of observation. Jesus might not come back in your lifetime. It is better to be prepared than to hope for that. Um, You're going to play Russian roulette with your whole financial future over a theological concept that you have no idea when it might come to pass. Um, We've got to be wise. Number one, we've got to work hard. Number two, we've got to be wise, which means staying out of debt. It means staying out of debt. It means not putting money in things going down in value. It means not trusting the government to do it for us. There's all kinds of other things it means. It means live on a budget. Take charge of your finances. Show self-control. If you want a good book on that, the best book I've read on that is called The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey. The Total Money Makeover by Dave Ramsey will really help you with a lot of those practical things. And it has budget worksheets and all kinds of things in the back of it. So number one, work. Number two, wisdom. Stay out of debt. Don't put money in things going down in value. Save 10% of your income. Don't trust the government to do it for you. Um, Number three, honor. Honor. You want to stay within your calling and your strengths. And you want to honor the strengths and the calling of other people. Without going through the whole scripture, I want to tell you, one of the things that stands out to me about the story of David and Goliath, which we all are pretty familiar with, David's a shepherd and... The, the, the issue with David is the flannel graph. You guys remember the flannel graph? How big is David on the flannel graph? How big's Goliath? Right? And, and, and there was a lot of description. The, the, the Goliath was like nine foot six. But the idea that David was some small little puny guy, not true. He was, a, he was a shepherd. He was a tough man. He was a man's man. He killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. This guy is not someone you would just go mess with, okay? Um... And Goliath is, is challenging the armies of Israel, and, and he's blaspheming God. David goes to Saul and says, are you just going to let him do this? I'll go handle this. I, I would say to you, David was probably a little bit hot-headed. Um, David said, I'll, I'll go handle this. No problem. Let me at him. Well, Saul says, well, if you're going to go at him, at least wear my armor, right? And when David puts the armor on, does it say that David couldn't use it because it didn't fit? No, it says David couldn't use it because he wasn't used to it. It wasn't his tools, right? I mean, it says Saul was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in the land. David must have been a pretty big dude to even think that they could possibly fit him into the armor. The issue wasn't that it didn't fit. The issue was it wasn't his tools. David was anointed to be king, but it wasn't his time. His calling was still a shepherd. So he goes down and he gets five smooth stones, and this is what it says... And he put it in his shepherd's bag. And he put it in his shepherd's bag. So when he goes to face Goliath, what does he look like? A shepherd. He's got a staff, and he's got a shepherd's bag, which had the sling and the five rocks. If you go back and read the story, this is what it says. And Goliath was enraged, and he said, Am I a dog that you are coming at me with a stick? Which is staff. Wait, hold, hold on. So what did Goliath do? Goliath chose to dishonor what David's calling was. Goliath chose to dishonor and disrespect what David's calling was, and ultimately it was his downfall. David chose to stay within his calling, and it ultimately ended up uh, 
resulting in victory for David and, and the entire situation and ultimately the armies of Israel. Listen, one of the most destructive things you could do financially is live in such a way where you always wish you were somebody else. If I only had this, if I only had this gift, if I only had this opportunity, if I only had this education, if I only had this, oh, if only I, no, 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 hold on, hold on. We got to come back to a core belief here. Do you really believe that God has already put in you everything you need for life and godliness and success and winning and abundance? And, and I would say to you that he has. And, and if there's any question in you that he hasn't, you have to deal with that. Because it, it'll force you to live constantly. One of the Ten Commandments ends like this. It says, uh, don't covet anything that is your neighbor's. Anything that is your neighbor's. Um, I look around this room. Here's what I see. I see a bunch of gifts. Some of your gifts might be like mine. Most of them would not be. There's people in this room who could never get up in front of people and talk because they'd be too scared. But those same people are the ones who can run businesses like I have in the background. And without them, I can't even operate. So here's what I see. I see a bunch of people with callings and gifts and talents and personalities that I need to choose to honor. And it would be futile for me to live my life wanting to be you. And it's futile for you to live your life wanting to be me. That the key to, one of the keys to financial success is honoring what God called you to be by seeking it out, discovering it, um, being introspective going through a process of learning just exactly what your gifts and talents and personalities are and then finding something in the center of that to make your living. All right? So, number one, work hard. Number two, be wise. Get out of debt. Save money. Don't put money in things going down in value. Don't trust the government to do it for you. Number three, honor. Number four, knowing God. Knowing God. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 40. Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. says this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God. What, well, what's happened here is someone has asked him, what do you need to do to inherit eternal life? Um, so he says, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? And then there's this discussion about how do you read it and all this stuff. And then finally, there's this question, what's the greatest command? What's, can you summarize the, 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 your, your whole yoke in one sentence? Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the Torah and the prophets hang on these two commands. In, in other words, um, memorize the entire Old Testament or just do those two things. <laughs> um, let me just make it as simple as I can. Now, here's the issue. For us, we tend to think of Loving God and loving people as two things. What, 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 what's your goal in life? I, I want to love God and love people. Uh, okay, I want to love God and love people. Actually, in the literary formation of this sentence, as well as just in their thought, loving God and loving people are, in the, are, are the same exact thing. That, that to them, loving people is loving God, and loving God is loving people. That it is impossible to say that you love God if you don't love other people. It is also impossible to, to hate other people or to have enmity between you and somebody else and then say you love God. It is also impossible to be a generous, loving person towards other people and not somehow learn the love of God in the process. That, that loving God is loving people and loving people is loving God. That to them you can't separate the two. I was sitting with a rabbi once. And he said, this was not my rabbi, it was just a guy on a plane. And he said, Shane, don't you understand 
that in Jewish culture, it's impossible to be righteous and greedy. You just can't do it. You can't say you love God and then step over the beggar. You just can't do that. You can't say you love God and then turn your back on a hopeless person. You can't say you love God and then... No, 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 no. The way you love God is how you love people. And how you love people is loving God. That the two things are intertwined. Now, in the Bible, you're going to see a lot of phrases like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Even sometimes you see inherit the land. All of these phrases are the same exact phrase. The word heaven sometimes refers to a place. Like a place we go. Where the abode of... Of heaven, um, but but other times heaven is a euphemism for God because they didn't like to say the name God. E- even today, sometimes you might get an email from a Messianic Jew and they spell God G hyphen D. They, they they don't want to ever totally articulate the idea of God. So what they did is that, is they called it heaven. So sometimes the, the Bible might say you have sinned against heaven. Um, that was just a euphemism for saying you've sinned against God. Okay, so the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And what it was, was it was a euphemism, not for where you go someday. It, it was a euphemism for what would your life be like if God was in charge of it now, here, now, today? What would it be like if God was the ruler and the reigner of everything in your life? In other words, if everything in your life was brought into the light and darkness was dispelled, what would your life look like then? That was the kingdom of God. And so, so for the rest of this session, I want to ask you a question that's going to seem confrontational and good. Um, um, because it's a question we have to deal with. And, and that is this question. Do you know God? Do you know him? If I was to hand out a piece of paper and say, I want you to write down a one-sentence definition for what it means to know God, we would get all kinds of different answers. Some would be right. Some would be wrong. All would be sincere. All would be heartfelt, and all would have a certain element of your personal thing with God in it. The question is, how important is it to know God? The answer is very. Um, the, the second question is, is how does God define what it means to know Him? Let, let me read you a few scriptures that illustrate this. Uh, Luke chapter thirteen, verse twenty-two. Luke thirteen twenty-two to thirty. It's an interesting story. It says. It says, then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? I love that. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, you got to understand, the, the region he's in is in a highly orthodox region of, of Israel. It was, it was filled with, with people who had made the Torah even harder than it was. 613 commands in the Torah. They were actually keeping 3,000 commands. So they had made the Torah even harder than it was. And here was their thought. Since we are keeping the Torah better than anybody else, God loves us more than other people. So they started having the thought, we're in and everyone else is out. We're right and everyone else is wrong. We would never do that, would we? So this group of people had names for themselves. Here's what they called themselves. The elect. The remnant. God's special people so when they ask him rabbi are only a few going to be saved here's what they're saying rabbi are only a few going to be saved and it's us right (laughs) tell us we're right we're in everyone else is out we're right everyone else is wrong now when someone asks you a question like that there are two ways to handle it one is taekwondo the other is judo (laughs) judo taekwondo you confront it 
judo, you sort of side yourself with them, and just at the right moment, you throw them. Um, Jesus chooses judo. I love it. Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Hold on. Jesus saying, he said, oh, yeah, yeah. You guys think only a few people make it? That's a real narrow path. Oh, yeah, be, be sure to enter through the narrow door because there's, there's a lot of people. You're right. There, there's a lot of people who think they're in and they're, they're actually out. Now, the guy asking the question is going, yeah, tell them. Watch the next sentence. I love it. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will be the one standing outside knocking and pleading. <laughs> in other words, oh, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of people who think they're in and they're actually out. And, and that's actually you. <laughs> I love it. Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you. I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he'll reply, I do not know you or where you came from or where you came from away from me, you evildoers. And there'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourselves are thrown out. And people will come from the north, the east, the south, and the west and will take their place at the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who will be last and those who will be first and the first will be last. Hold on. He, he says to this group of people, he says, um, there's a lot of people who uh, think they're in and everybody else is out. Actually, it's, it's you who are out. You who thought you were in. You are the ones who will be shut out. Because at my banqueting table, many will come from the north, east, south, and west. And there's no room for people who think they're better than everybody else. Um, um, can I get an A? Um, the, um, so Jesus tells the story. And at the center of the story, twice, what does he say? I don't know you. The issue was not knowing God. And the other application is how you treat others matter. He ends that whole thing by saying, the people you think are out are actually the ones in. <laughs> oh, all those people you think are out because you're in and they're out? Oh yeah, they're actually the ones in and you're the ones shut out. Jesus is slamming them. Slamming them. How you treat others matter. And the issue was, I don't know you. Uh, next one, John seventeen three. John seventeen three. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. So to Jesus, what was eternal life defined by in the simplest sentence? To know God. How do you know you have eternal life? You know Him. You know Him. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Oh, here's another one. Um, Matthew 25, verse 1 through 12. This is the introduction to Jesus' sermon on sheep and goats. And um, this is what he says to introduce it. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. I, I was listening to one rabbi teach on this, and he said that in the Hebrew version of Matthew, when it says they took no oil with them, it says they took no tzedakah. They took no tzedakah, which we're going to get to in the next... Point. They took no sadaka. Sadaka is the Hebrew word generous or generosity or charity. They 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 took no they took no sadaka. It, it, interesting. Um, just a quick. I know I've shared this before, but um, maybe there's one or two that don't remember this. Um, 
that tzedakah is the word righteous. That is the word righteous. Tzedakah, tzedakah is the word generous. Generosity, charity. So I want everybody to try this with some gusto. Everybody say, Sadak. Try it again. Sadak. Try it this way. Sadaka. Sadak. Sadaka. Sadak. Sadaka. Alright. So, <laughs> so righteousness and generosity are the same word. Righteousness and generosity are the same word. You cannot separate righteousness and generosity. You cannot say you're righteous and be greedy. Impossible. 2,106 verses of Scripture. 2,106 verses connect righteousness with generosity. Greed and wickedness are also internally connected. Jesus said the love of money is the root of all evil. Greed's the root of all evil. Generosity was the key to righteousness. Actually, the only difference between righteousness and generosity was this H. You got the same word here, same word here. The H was the only difference between righteousness and generosity. The H in Hebrew by itself means to reveal. To reveal. So righteousness revealed was generosity. So, so the, ten, the five foolish virgins, they don't bring any generosity with them. This is going to play a huge point. Uh, the wise, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. Verse 5. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us your oil, for our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead... Go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth. I do not know you. The issue was they don't. God, he didn't know them. I, I don't know who you are. So in Luke chapter 13, the issue is I don't know who you are. The issue in the parable of the ten virgins is, I don't know who you are. The, the parable of the ten virgins is the introduction to Jesus' sermon on sheep and goats, which is all about generosity. And the sheep were on the right and the goats were on the left. And to the sheep he said, come into the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry you gave me food, when I was thirsty you gave me drink, when I was a stranger you took me in, when I was naked you clothed me, when I was in prison you came to me. And the righteous Sadak will say to him, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or in prison or in chains? When did we see all that and do that for you? He says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Now come on in. And to those on my left, I will say, away from me, for you did not do those things. So in Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about how he's going to judge the world, the key to how he judged the world was generosity. Was knowing God. Sadaka. Sadaka. In the sheep and goats, he doesn't say, to those on my right, come into the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world for you said the sinner's prayer. <laughs> no, he said, so, 
come in. Four, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. It was sadaka. It was developing a sadaka spirit. Here, here's another one. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. How important is it to know God? (laughs) Pretty important. Um, so Jesus says, there's a lot of people at the end of the day who think they're in, but they're actually out. Which is incredibly scary. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Why is that scary? Because I think I'm in. And so do you. What separates me and you from them? Nothing yet. They thought they were in. I think I'm in. They've cried out, Lord, Lord. You've cried out, Lord, Lord. So have I. Jesus seems to say that there's a lot of people at the end of the day who think they're in, but they're actually out. And then he goes into this huge description and he describes Pentecostal leaders. Who else is prophesying and casting out devils and performing miracles? Who else is doing that? Nobody. Pentecostal leaders. I mean, seriously. Baptist in Auckland, they're safe. <laughs> right? They're not doing that. So he says, he says, many will say to me at that day, Lord, Lord. And I'll say, wait a minute, I don't know you. Wait a minute, no, but we cast out devils and, and we perform many miracles and we prophesied. And he says, yeah, I, but, but I didn't know you. Which is scary, why? Because that sounds like me. I've cried out, Lord, Lord. I have. I've made Jesus the Lord of my life. When I, I did it a lot of times because when I was in the Pentecostal church, you lost your salvation every time you sinned, so I got saved every week. I'm more saved than all of you, probably. probably is. <laughs> I, I, I might be in. <laughs> um, the um, so, so I've cried out, Lord, Lord. I, I've, I've, I've prophesied. I have. Uh, I, I move in the Spirit quite a lot. I, I don't really do it when I'm here at Clark Taylor's or something because it happens here all the time. So I try to. Yeah, but I move in the Spirit quite a lot. So I've prophesied. I, I've cast out devils a couple times. I'll let him handle all that. So, uh, uh, I've 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 performed. I've been a part of some miracles or things I would say is miraculous. So, so what separates me from them? Nothing. The issue wasn't what they did. The issue is they didn't know him. Which begs the question: What does it mean to know God? You know, there's only one scripture in the whole Bible that God defines what it means to know Him. Only one. Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22, verse 16. He. Is it up there yet? You got to see this. He took care of the poor and the afflicted, so it will go well for him. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God? So to God, to know him is to take care of the poor and the afflicted. Doesn't that make sense? 
That to do something for someone who can't possibly do anything in return for you, that in doing that, you know the heart of God. Because isn't that what God did for you? That we are called not to go to heaven one day. We're actually called to bring heaven to every place there's hell now. This is central to their financial freedom. Like we could talk about all that we're going to. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the whole system they do for doing money. But if I give you the whole system and you miss the heart of it, it doesn't make any difference. If I give you the whole system and you're going to be lazy, whatever. If I'm going to give you the whole system and you're going to make stupid decisions, selfish decisions, whatever. If I'm going to give you the whole system, you're not going to honor each other and honor what's in your, on your own life, whatever. If I'm going to give you the whole system and we're going to miss the bigger aspect, which is do you know him? So they, this thing of knowing God followed Jesus through his whole ministry. This is eternal life that they may know me. Depart from me, I never knew you. Um, Jesus was nice to everybody. Who's the only person that Jesus ever said went to hell? Only one. Jesus' whole life, he only ever said one person went to hell. He said there's a rich man who overlooked a poor man at his gate. That's the guy that ends up in hell. Which, before we excuse ourselves from that conversation, um, <laughs> we are the rich man. <laughs> if you drove here in an automobile, it doesn't matter what kind of car you have, you're in the richest 8% of the whole world. If you left your spare car at home, you're in the richest 1% of the whole world. If the home you left it at has a concrete foundation and lumber is the primary building material. In other words, um, you don't live in a trailer. Okay, If, if you... If, if your home is not mobile, um, you're in the richest 0.1 of 1% of the whole world. Uh, we are the rich man. The, the question is, what are we going to do about it? If you look at the rich man in Lazarus, the rich man goes to hell because he overlooked the poor man at his gate. And then even in hell, what does he do? He says, Abraham, send that beggar over here to give me some water. The man is in hell and he still thinks he's better than the poor man. <laughs> so that the very thing that put him in hell... He kept making the same decision to stay there. You know anybody like that? <laughs> you know anybody that made decisions that put their life in hell and then they're in hell and they keep making the same decision? <laughs> Sounds like us. All right. So this day follows Jesus through his whole ministry. The rich man and Lazarus um, and, and the sheep and the goats. What was the key? In Matthew 25, what was the sheep and goats separated by? Sadaka, generosity. This is not what it means to know me. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 Peter shows up. He says, Cornelius, God has already counted you righteous because he knows at some point you're going to pray the prayer. Oh, God has already counted you righteous because your generosity to the poor has went up as a remembrance to him. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God? Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord your God? Let me close this session out with a, a scripture from 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, John has picked up on this principle. This is what he says. Uh, this is how we know what love is. Oh, sorry, 1 John three sixteen. The poor person up there cannot read my mind as to what verse it is. 1 John three sixteen, and then following. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought, here's the application, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is how he interprets that. If anyone has material good and sees his brother have material need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Sadaka. 
Dear children, let us not love with word only, but in action and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we can set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our hearts. In other words, John says, uh, you know those moments with God that you're just not sure if you're okay with him? The way to overcome that is to look around you and make people's lives better. For it is in that generosity that you can know you belong to God and your heart is set at rest in his presence. Um, Ten verses later, this is how he says it. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. My question is, before we get into the logistics of everything, is do you know him? Do you know him? And if you're not sure, are you willing to adjust your life to develop a Sadaka spirit? Are you at least willing to genuinely ask God, God, instill a Sadaka spirit in me, a right spirit. Sadak, Sadaka, instill a Sadaka spirit in me. May I be a person who isn't waiting to go to heaven, but is actually looking around for opportunities to bring heaven to every place there's hell I see. May I be someone who has developed a Sadaka spirit, for I want to know you. So number one, work. Number two, wisdom. Stay out of debt. Don't put money in things going down in value. Um, save 10% of your income, which we're going to talk about that in the next session. But, um, don't trust the government to do it for you. They will go broke. <laughs> See America. Um, <laughs> 14 trillion in debt. Hard to get your head around. Um, um, honor what's on your life and what's on the life of others. And number four, seek the face of God, desperately desiring to know Him. I bless you to be a people who know God. Who know God. Not in some definition we made up, but in the way he defined it to take care of the poor and the afflicted. May we be people who look around us and seek to show the righteousness and the generosity and the love of God to the world. Okay? Um, let's take a ten minute break. We'll come back and we'll t- I'll show you the whole Jewish system. <laughs>